Hi there. Welcome to Season 2 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Lauren Tarpley. Lauren is a mom, wife, baker, foodie, Carolina-born bourbon and travel enthusiast. She loves cupcakes and making lists. As soon as I greeted Lauren, she hit the ground running and I spent the rest of the podcast just trying to keep up with her. She does not wait for life to happen. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You are so welcome. It's great having you. It's great to meet you. Likewise. Uh, yeah. So I did a little research on you. Oh, you did? That's what just did what find? I do. You know, like, I, I've got a podcast, so I'm used to just, like, looking people up really quickly and, like, finding some points and, like, whatever. Really, you know, really love the conversational, like, aspect of a podcast. Sometimes when people are just, like, listing off questions, I feel like it's an inquisition. Mm. <laughs> so... But yeah, no, uh, you, you and your story are like very inspiring. And I just wanted to let you know that off the bat. And I'm really excited to be here today. So oh, thank you so much for saying so. I appreciate you looking into seeing who I am and like, who am I signing up to talk to? Do I want to yeah. have this conversation? Yeah. I mean, you're really credible. So. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You have to, you have to, you have to give me some insight into what you're talking about, you know, cause I think as you know, <laughs> we just do what we do. We yeah. get diagnosed and then we do what we do and we find our way. And, you know, people say to me, well, I don't know if I could, you know, go through it the way you did. I don't know if I'd be able to go through it. And I say, you know, I have no idea what you could do, but what I'll tell you, my guess is you're going to do what you always do. What you have to do. It's just going to be another, a more intense and more maybe just, it's going to be the same person you've always been. It's just going to be that person dealing with a life-threatening disease. So I want to say that, um, first off, I don't know why, but I always go to Instagram, right? So when I had a baby, you know, I had my mom, wealth of knowledge. I had my mother-in-law, wealth of knowledge. Like we are a really tight family. Like it's the reason why, I mean, Charleston, South Carolina, it wins an award every week. There's 37 people who move here every single day. It's very annoying. We're like the nicest city in the world. But, you know, I've got a great support system here. And I don't know, like, when you're diagnosed, a lot of things happen. And, like, when I had the kid, I went on Instagram and I found some parenting accounts. And that leads you down a rabbit hole. And, you know, you sign up to follow 50 people in one in an hour because you're just like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So once I finally, you know, like after you get the CT and the PET and the MRI and they stage you and they grade you and all that stuff, I found some people on Instagram and that's been really helpful. But I've also learned a lot about myself. Like I've learned that I'm not a great group therapy kind of gal. Good thing I'm not a quitter because I Mm -hmm. couldn't do AA. I can't group share. But I will say that Everyone that I've ever reached out to in the cancer community on Instagram, and I mean every single person, they've responded. Like we we correspond. Like I honestly feel like we're friends. But not everybody gets the oh you're so strong and we're so proud of you and you can do this and and so that's what's kind of off putting to hear that not everyone is getting that support for something that's so so serious but yeah you just do what you have to do like when you got your initial diagnosis did they call you 
Did you get it over the phone? They called us in to go speak to them in person. The my doc called and they told us there. You, okay. you, got, a, you got a phone call? I got a phone call. See, I can't comprehend that. Every every single person I've spoken to got a phone call. No one, no, no I mean, I'm I'm referring to 30, 30 to 35 people. Every single person got a phone call. I was at work. I wonder if it's the hospital that I went to because I was diagnosed both times by that hospital and both times they asked me to come in. Well, the second, excuse, take that back. The second time they told me that, yeah, we think you have cancer. We're pretty sure we got to do a biopsy. But the first time, you know, they had me come in and meet with them. They said, it looks like it. And then when we came in, they said, yes, I can't imagine being at work and getting a phone call. Yeah, you have cancer. It's like, um, I'm working. Yeah. And honestly, for me, I was so matter of fact when they diagnosed me. I was like, okay, that makes sense. And this is what we'll do. Okay. Well, okay. Well, that's what we'll do. Okay. Okay. A little bit in shock. It was the next day when I yeah. lost my shit and started screaming at the ceiling, crying my eyes out. You know, I wake up and I go, eyes pop open, yawn. I go, oh my gosh, I have cancer. Yeah. So you get a phone call. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's the thing too. Like when they tell you, you're like, yeah, shut the fuck up. Okay, cool. Uh, next. So I am 35. I have been getting mammograms since I was 30. I take rules as suggestions and laws as rules, right? So I'm not going to break the law. But if there's like a rule with your insurance company where it's like, we pay for mammograms at 40 years old. <laughs> no, because literally every person in my family has had cancer, mm. a, a kind of cancer. My grandmother, breast cancer. My grandfather that just passed in July, bladder cancer. My mother's oldest sister, brain, multiple cancers, but brain cancer killed her. Mm. Um, my So my mom is one of seven. The next brother down had leukemia and he had converted to um, Islam. But what is, I feel bad. He's a Muslim? Yes. That's mm -hmm. the so he couldn't get any transfusions, right? He was totally curable. And mm. he was so deep in his faith that he, he chose to follow the rules of the faith. And since my mom is one of seven and she's the second youngest, I have been going to funerals since I was four, right? Like my family's mm. huge, huge. My dad's one of four. My mom's one of seven. So the cousins alone, the great aunts, the grandparents, like we're from North Carolina. They lived an hour and a half apart from each other. Like Every other weekend when I was a kid, we're going back to North Carolina. We're very close family. A lot of people, even with even with cancer and surgery and things like that, a lot of people in my family live to be very old. Like my 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 grandfather's aunt, both of his aunts live to be over like 112. Uh, 112. Yes, small small towns outside of North Carolina. Like my grandpa. He's, he's the only one that never got cancer. He just died two years ago. Uh, he was 91. Wow. So everybody, you know, like even with cancer scares, even with cancer, they, they usually still live pretty long, but no one in my family, they're so, they're so stubborn. Uh, they won't do chemo. They, they'll all do radiation and surgery, but I think it's because they're so, they're so much older, right? Like okay. my mom's the second youngest and she's 60. So you got to, you got to put it in that kind of perspective. It's like, everyone's very old. And so when, when they get this news and you ask the right questions, it's like, okay, what, what's chemo going to do to me? I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 80. Or 
what's radiation going to do to me? I'm going to be tired. Oh, well, I'm tired now. So I'll take the radiation. And it's worked for them. I'm the, hmm. I'm the youngest person in my family to be diagnosed. So that's my, that's like my family history. Everybody, you know, it's, and it's systemic, right? Like there, there are racial divisions um, in medicine. Systemic racism is very, very heavy in medicine. Even when it comes down to breast cancer, it's like twice as many black women get metastatic breast cancer than white women because their claims are ignored or they aren't able to make it to the doctor or they won't fight Blue Cross Blue Shield to cover their, or to cover more of a mammogram. A mammogram out of pocket is $350. That's it. You could walk, and if you walk in with cash, they'll probably do it for a hundred. I get it. It's scary. It's scary as shit. You're going somewhere for them to tell you, like your body you don't know what's in there. Right. You know what's supposed to be in there. You know you've got bones and organs, but you don't know what else is in there. And I, I felt like a badass going in there and getting a mammogram at 30. I, I was taking responsibility and I'm taking I'm taking my health into my own hands. And I'll say that when I turned 30 is like when I really just like wanted to get my shit together. Like you know what I mean? You're in your 20s. You do whatever you want. You're invincible. Right. You're drinking bar mat shots. Like whatever mm-hmm. the secret dollar shot is, you don't care. You're right. you're playing bladder busters. Like the last first one to go to the bathroom loses. Like, okay, well, good <laughs> luck. My debit card's not going to go through to pay for all of our beers. Sorry. <laughs> so started going at 30. Uh, no, and no one in my family had been diagnosed so early. But I did, I did know a little bit, and I will tell you, <laughs> and they can at you or email you all that they want. Don't at me. Don't email me. I don't care. This is the truth. Black people, and I'm including myself, have had a hard ride in America. That's mm-hmm. a fact. From the, from the start, how we got here and being here now. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen this since May. June, July, the riots, the unrest. And what I've learned in my family, which in talking to a lot of my African-American, Black friends, whatever they prefer to be called, a lot of Black people don't tell their business. And even to their family. I had a conversation with one of my friends yesterday, and she said her mom was just like my mom. My mom is always trying to protect us. She, the two things that she always says is, I just, I, my job is to protect you every single day of my life. I want your life to be easier than mine was because my parents, again, at 60, started going to school in in segregated schools. Mm. And my mom's like, I just, you know, I want you to be good. And in saying that, she's like, so don't, don't spill all your tea and don't tell all your business. (laughs) Right. And Mm so, uh, I'm going 100% against that uh, every day of my life on my podcast, <laughs> but mm. but she's cool with that because like in my Tell husband, everyone what your podcast is. It's called Life with Little Ones. We just sit around and 
let's just talk about how many times we get thrown up on a day. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a safe space and it's a place to gripe. And I just really like having like all different kinds of families on single parents by choice. Um, you know, people who've been through IVF, interracial, interfaith couples, single dads, just things like that. So, because just like with you, everybody has a journey. And even if you start in the same place, you're not going to end up in the same place. Like that's, you know, chaos theory. Hello, Jurassic Park. So anyway, you know, my mom says, you know, it's, it's kind of like an unsaid thing in the black community. Like who do you trust? And just like, don't tell your business. So what's unfortunate is that when someone does have a health scare, or like, let's say someone got like stage zero. I love that they have a stage zero right now. Um, stage zero or a stage one cancer, they might tell their brother or sister, but they don't tell anyone else in the family, which is very bad because when I'm in an oncologist's office and they're asking me about all the people who had cancer, my very first appointment, my mom had to go because I did not know half of the people had had cancer like I just thought they died of old age or a heart attack and when I say my maternal grandmother my paternal grandfather my paternal my dad's sister has like cervical cancer right now my mom's brother my mom's sister like literally the woman's like slow down like she's writing (laughs) right and I didn't know any of that so oh my goodness it is a cultural thing to just kind of keep your keep your business to yourself my studies have shown me that in the past that you know, black people have been abused by the medical system for so long, Mm -hmm. tested on without being told. I've learned and I appreciate you, you know, affirming this, that like there's just been such a lack of trust. Exactly. To even go in and be like, okay, I'm going to give them say over me. Yeah. The first thought that popped into my mind was like, so you go into a hospital, you're like, oh, look at this. I have a black doctor. I I wonder, like, have you found with the people you know, the black people you know who've been diagnosed, does that change, like, within your family? Has that changed their relationship to the medical world? So all of my family lives in North Carolina. And so whenever they have gotten to the point where they need to go in for cancer, they go straight to UNC. And okay. when you're at UNC, you don't ask what, you know what I mean? Like, they have full faith okay. about the black doctor thing. A lot of people I know prefer an African-American doctor, if a black doctor, if they are a person of color, because these are facts. These statistics are out there. So if you want to go down a rabbit hole and you want to learn something, please feel free. It's all on the internet. But black doctors are discriminated against just as much as the African-American population. Hmm. their credentials there are people who will say i do not want a black doctor and it (laughs) blows my mind doctors of color and i've seen it and i've heard it my best friend is a doctor she fights every single day for systemic racism and in medicine and racial bias in medicine and it's just really unfortunate Hmm. that we are one of the most developed worlds um, countries in the world and like black mothers die. I think it's a, I think it, I don't know if it went down this year, but it was either three or four to one where more women die with like maternal and like issues like during birth to, 
to white women in our country today. That's huge. Today. Um, it is a fact. It is, it is in writing, again, on the internet, where it lists uh, things where they say that like black women or black patients where they're different from white patients, like black patients have a higher or pain threshold. So you can give them more medicine. You can give them the stronger chemo drug. You can wait longer to give them an epidural. There's no rush there. Oh my gosh. This is literally all in writing. Like the, the racial bias is it's sickening and what is really wild to me is that there's always going to be people that get lost in the mix. And like, let's say you've got, you have a slew of nurses who just started, who finished their last semester, go in and you, you got a new nurse with like a tenured nurse. Who's like seven months from retirement and they are going to pass along the good, bad, and ugly to these super green nurses. And then that's how it just perpetuates. And I don't know what's going to stop it, but I do know what will curb it is when you advocate for yourself and you, even if you Google it while you're in the waiting room, know something, have questions. Don't ever go to a doctor's appointment without questions. Ask your doctor about themselves. You can sniff out a racist like, I don't want to raise a doctor. <laughs> like, and it might be easier other places. I mean, I'm in South Carolina, but I don't, and you know, my husband and I have talked about this because my husband is white. And so I always wonder if I, because I do feel like I, it might just be the team that I have assembled personally, my own ex team. I'm talking about my gynecologist, my OBGYN. I'm talking about my oncologist, my oncology surgeon. Uh, it, I had to fire the first one. She, she was terrible. Like when I say no bedside manner, like, and, and, mm. and for her, I don't think it had anything to do with race at all. I just think she's a terrible people doctor. Like she should be a vet. Like she would be a fantastic <laughs> vet. Great. My, my GP, my GP is the one who writes my, referrals and prescriptions for my mammograms because I've been I've been going to him for seven eight years and for him to listen to my concerns enough my GP to you know get these mammograms approved starting at 30 that that's huge and and he's a white man because the African-American doctor I had like switched systems and that she wasn't covered and things like that. So I do have a few African-American doctors like in my mix. It's not all black, mm -hmm. but when I am looking, sometimes I specifically look for a black doctor because mm -hmm. I know that there are people who will not allow for a black doctor to treat them. And that's insane. Oh. It's to the point where I was, I was reading, I was actually reading last night that like a lot of black doctors have to open their own practices. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So there's so much in what you've been saying to me. It brings me back to when I was first diagnosed 
I started to read about the medical industry. And, you know, my naive belief that there was not greed and bias in medicine. And naturally, since there is racism in this country and in this world, there is yeah. going to be racism in medicine. Without yeah. a doubt. And everyone listening, if you don't know, I'm white and I don't deal with that. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm a white guy. And I was raised to go to the doctor. I was raised such that when I go to the doctor, I ask questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've, I've learned about families that, you know, and this is not a, I don't know if this is a, uh, um, what the numbers are as far as, you know, race goes, but just people in general that will go to a doctor's office and won't ask questions because they see the doctor as the authority. And, you know, there's certain exactly. parents that just raises their kids to be like, you ask questions. And I can imagine from what you're saying, if you've dealt with systemic racism in the medical world, it's hard enough to speak to a doctor. I, I don't, I'm not big on advice. I don't like giving people advice, but there is a little bit of advice that I tell people. I say, when you speak, ask your doctor if you can refer to him or her by their first name. And this was handed to me. I didn't come up with this because what like that does, that. yeah, it levels the playing field. It, it yeah. allows you to speak to the person as somewhat of a peer. You know, I try to remind people, your doctor is your partner. Yeah. They're not the authority. They're going to bring all their wisdom and their training and their experience to the conversation with you, but you get final say. You get to say how it goes. It's the oh, first yeah. thing that one of my fellow survivors, she called me, a dear friend of mine. She says, you, when I got diagnosed, she goes, Bert, you get to say how it goes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why refer them by their first name? Because it, it, it makes it a touch easier to not be speaking to them like they're the authority. Like they're a person, you're a person, and it might actually help mm-hmm. them with their bedside manner. If you're like, hey, Ryan, and he's like, hey, Lauren, okay. Like, well, my doctor calls me bitch, but I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. bitch. And like, <laughs> so when when he called me and told me I had cancer and he didn't say, hey, bitch, I was like, oh, uh-uh. Like, what? Oh, no. no. He's like, hey, Lauren. No. No. Oh, like, no. My husband doesn't call me Lauren. <laughs> but like, my friends don't call me Lauren. I'm Lala. I'm LT. I'm LC. Like, I love a nickname. I love a babe, boo, bae. It, bitch, <laughs> like you guys nice, say, hey, bitch. Yeah. If you say Lauren, I'm in trouble. I'm triggered. Oh. I just, I just like remember my mom, like Lauren. They're like, oh no. Uh oh. When you call a doc by your first name, you are hopefully going to feel more comfortable, be more willing to speak freely, and that's going to be beneficial to them. They're going to get someone who's going to be more open and provide them more information, hopefully, so that they can make a more informed decision. Yeah. When people just get, you know, because I can, I can, you know, people have told me and they just get quiet and they get diagnosed. Doc, do whatever you have to do. I mean, I lost a friend who told her, Doc, get as aggressive as you can, get this out of me, get this done. And when she called me, when I got diagnosed, she's like, Bert, this is what I did. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had gotten a second opinion. I wish I had done this. I wish I'd done that. And I was like, damn, it was hard to hear her say all that. And I really benefited from it because I don't know how I would have gone in. Like I was, a, I mean, I was a deer in the headlights when I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Full well, shock, you know? I mean, if she told her doctor to go as aggressive, did she pass from the treatment then or... She had a lot of issues that she didn't speak about with me. Got it. Uh, 
she was diagnosed with anal cancer, and then she didn't tell anybody what kind of cancer she had. And I respect that. You know, it's like when I had rectal cancer, I was like, oh, no, wait, wait. I found out what my rectum is. I'm like, oh, no, I got to talk about that. Right. Like, first <laughs> off, it's like, what is my rectum? Okay, so is poop that... is part of the whole thing and lovely. Yeah. Great. So she didn't want to talk about it. I, I respect that. She didn't tell me but what she was dealing with, but, you know, the how the treatment impacted her body resulted in that she went to a detox clinic to try to heal from the treatment. And the cancer did come back two more times, and eventually uh, she passed away. But she spoke mostly to, like, how it ravaged her body. Yeah. And she wished she hadn't. Hadn't gone for the aggressive treatment. Hadn't gone so aggressive. Had gotten additional opinions. Yeah. Had, you know, she was scared to death. I mean, I could go on and on about that, right, about how people respond in fear. I am curious, though, since we're now... A good half hour in. What were you diagnosed with? <laughs> yeah, so I was in. I was diagnosed with invasive inductal carcinoma. So yeah, my doctor calls me and it's just like Lauren. I'm like, no, where's the bitch? And he's like, well, this is a bitch, and uh, it's cancer, and it's you know invasive inductal carcinoma. And I was like, okay. Cool. So I find myself to be somewhat knowledgeable. Like if you're going to get mammograms, like this is, it was my fourth one. I skipped the year where I had my son because I was breastfeeding and I could have Googled it and seen if I really don't know if you can do it while you're breastfeeding or maybe you have to like dump that day or whatever. But I was just like, okay, I've been going since I was 30. I've got dense breast tissue, but that's all they keep saying. When I go, they look at me like you're taking this table, you know, you're taking this mammogram machine from someone else. Like, well, no, we're all paying. It takes 15 minutes. Like I was referred for a reason. I had to answer a million questions for the insurance company. My doctor kept asking like, are you sure you want to keep doing this? And I'm like, yes, like I want to stay on top of this. So, um, I, like I said, I skipped one year. So there were 18 months. Okay. I skipped one year. I, I got, you know, my annual referral from my doctor and then COVID hit and they canceled all imaging. Right. Mm -hmm. So I got back in as soon as I could. It was in July and the doctor called me the very next day or no, the, um, imaging lab called me said that my results were concerning and they said that I had very dense tissue but then there was like this like opaque part in the dense tissue so there were changes from my last mammogram that was 18 months ago then mm. in the other breast there were calcifications and asymmetry and asymmetry is not what you want to hear for breast cancer so they called me they called me like the next day, which was very normal. I thought she was just going to be like, hey, uh, just wanted to call you, tell you everything was good. Right. That was not the call. Left breast had, you know, the like the opaque on top of the density. The right breast had calcifications and asymmetry. Asymmetry is number one concern. And then the calcifications were just wild. So you usually don't get calcifications in your milk ducts until menopause. And I am very far from menopause. Actually, I had just gone to the doctor in May 
to get the clearance to start for another baby because our son was 14 or 15 months at the time. And we really wanted them like exactly like, you know, two years apart. And, you know, being 34, I was like, we need to get on the busy foot. So yeah, like the, um, the OB appointment went well, but my blood pressure was a little high, <laughs> a little high. My blood pressure was like 160 over like 115. And they were like, this is not good. And she's like, do you ever get like really lightheaded? And I'm like, yeah, like almost daily. She's like, you have high blood pressure. So like they put me on high blood pressure medicine mm. in May. They, you know, found those calcifications and they were like, this is not, I've never like literally the PA who called me was like, I have never seen a calcification in a 34 year old woman. And I was like, okay. So just so happened that day. And when I say my whole medical team gets me and like understands that I'm like very communicative and I like need the call, right? Like my, I, I called my doctor when she was on maternity leave. And then as soon as she got back, she got freaking COVID. And so then mm. like I messaged her and made sure she was cool with COVID. And then, then she got back and she um, was calling me to see how the blood pressure medication was working. And I was like, oh, it's working great. And then um, I, I asked her, I was like, hey, they want me to come back for like a second mammogram and now an ultrasound because I got calcifications. And she was like, calcifications, like that's not good. And like, that is just so insane that my doctor just called me. I, I honestly think she was like calling to be like, hey, you pregnant yet? And like, but she's calling me from her cell phone. You know what I mean? Like, these are things mm -hmm. where there's got to be an angel sitting on your shoulder, like, call Lauren. Cause why? Are, I just saw you. I just saw you two months ago. And, you know, God bless. Last time it only took the first time to have Chip. So maybe she was calling for that, but she called and she was like, go to that appointment. So I got, it took, you know, two weeks for that. And, um, they did the ultrasound and that doctor was like, I don't like the way this looks. It's weird. It's only in one duct. And for me, what was even weirder is that, you know, I've gone to my OB. They always do a breast exam. She felt nothing. In the mammogram, they saw the calcifications. Now I'm at the second appointment. They're seeing, it took her 20 minutes to find the calcifications, even being guided by the previous mammogram, because it's underneath and six centimeters behind my nipple. So like, it's literally like hidden. It's like the last duct you have, right? Hmm. So she was like, wouldn't that would just, just be funny if it was gone? Because she was like, it could have just been some weird milk or something. Like I, I had just stopped breastfeeding. And I was like, yeah, that would be fantastic. And she goes, oh, no, here it is. Found it. Like it took her 20 minutes, this very professional ultrasound tech. It took her 20 minutes to find these calcifications. So the doctor comes in and she was like, I, I'm at a loss and I would not feel comfortable without biopsying this. Uh. And, and I was like, okay, then let's buy. I've never had anything biopsied. Let's do it. So I go back. I think it's, I don't know why it took so long to get back in there because this is like July, August, September. So mm -hmm. I go in September 3rd, I get biopsied and thank God they picked the right one, right? Like any of those calcifications might've been benign. 
but they picked three. Hmm. And all three came back cancerous. So they called me. The doctor called me. He said, invasive inductal carcinoma, not in situ. So it's not stage zero. He said it came back as a grade three. Very aggressive. So I'm going to refer you. Um, I'm going to call this woman, Dr. B. It had been three weeks at a time. So I was like, no, I'm getting an appointment. I will, I will have an appointment by the end of today. So I told the nurse what was, or the scheduler what was going on. She's like, she's like, we can get you in next Friday. I was like, look, you don't know me. I will be there Monday helping you turn on lights and vacuuming the floor. <laughs> so if somebody doesn't show up, I'm going to be seen Monday. And she was like, okay, I will put you on the cancellation list. She gets me in for like Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, I had a job interview on Wednesday. <laughs> so I go to my first oncology appointment. You know, that one's very long. They're talking to you about everything. Right. And then I, I have to come back here and face off and... Ha- oh and, and have like the best job interview ever because it's it like I ended up getting the job it's my job now but like it's literally the best and I and I just had to, <laughs> to fucking fake my way through it but like you were saying initially I mean so like my doctor calls me on nine four and tells me I have invasive and Dr. Carcinoma and I didn't google it and I always Google. I didn't Google. I was like, I'm going to let this other doctor tell me what it is, what I'm dealing with. My husband starts Googling and he's like, you know, this is not, it, it doesn't sound terrible. Right. So I was like, okay. I immediately call my best friend as soon as I get off the phone with the doctor. Cause she's a doctor. She's an anesthesiologist. And she was like, okay. And she just starts making calls. Mm. And now I've got, you know, the best of the best of this person calling me and whatever and telling me and, you know, consoling us all. Um, I Zoomed that meeting and I still have it um, for my first doctor's appointment, the crying, the everything. Mm. Um, So, you know, she sits down and she's like, you have invasive inductive carcinoma, your stage one. And I was so relieved. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, right now we're testing for either 96 or like 115 genetic mutations. She's like, every year they get more complex. Every year with you know research, they know what to look for in genes. And especially for a Black woman for breast cancer, you need this gene genetic test so we know how to treat you. And I was like, okay, like I've always wanted a BRCA test. Like I, I have always wanted a double mastectomy because I never wanted to go through what my grandmother went through. Mm, that question, when she said, especially for a black woman, you want genetic testing. Why is that? Because there is so little trust between the medical community and the African-American community. And I'm speaking generally. This may mm-hmm. be different yeah. in yeah. different places. I I don't, <laughs> I'm ignorant because I only know my experiences and mm. I go in and I demand 
the respect I know I'm supposed to get. I go in to have my baby. My birth plan was in triplicate illuminated, uh, laminated. I don't play games. So I don't know if the way I'm treated is different because of how I present myself with the questions, with the laminated birth plans, with all the Googling, all the apps. I don't know. But the African-American community doesn't trust the medical community. So there isn't a ton of data to compare against, right? Like, even though everybody's cancer journey is different, they don't, uh, a, a better example. I'm in a medically induced menopause right now to save my ovaries from releasing eggs. And what it's supposed to do, as I was told, Zoladex and Lupron is you get the shot, you get it monthly, you can get it every three months. I get mine every month, but it's supposed to just like make that chemo, just like ignore your ovaries and your uterus. Right. So you can come out of it. Okay. Okay. They do not have any medical data of a 34 year old black woman having her two positive breast cancer, which is what I was ended up being diagnosed with I'll go back to that I'll go back to the story with Dr. B but they don't have that data so for them to give me the genetic testing and now put that data in the system with my age and you know you're turned into a number but your racial status and things like that I mean that's why they ask you if you're your race right like there's certain races that do like blood you know, like, uh, like, like when you get baptized and stuff like that, and like certain religion um, traditions that like involve blood and stuff, like they ask you these things because like certain people do things and that can affect your treatment. Just like with my uncle, are you willing to accept a blood transfusion? I will take all the blood. I will take anyone's blood. Pump mm. people of blood. I don't care. So, um, so that's why they don't have a they don't have a ton of data. So like they've got. The more data they can get, the more they can help you. And it's, it's just like the COVID vaccine. They did not have a ton of African-American participants. Mm. So when they're telling you about these side effects, these are side effects on very little people of color. I'm not a COVID expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. I honestly, the whole thing really bums me out because especially now with high blood pressure, I was immune compromised with this. I'm immune compromised. So like, I, I just don't leave the house. So I don't, I've stopped even, I can get my shot in like a month if, if they're even down to like my grade. Right. So I don't know anything about COVID, but I do know that they didn't test on a lot of people of color. And so when you say it's going to affect this age range this way and that age range that way, that's for white people. And as we know, drugs, alcohol affect people differently, like our indigenous people's population. They have a large, you know, like they're super in alcohol and it gives them problems like earlier on and they mm -hmm. die at earlier ages because they're their bodies are different. They're just people. I really appreciate hearing this because it's not a part of my world. So I'm not aware of it, you know, yeah. and there can be a lot of upset with people, but I, I get the upset. I understand. And I'm also cool with saying, I don't know, because like we live in our own worlds. And as we become more 
uh, aware of what happens in other people's worlds, you know, we can get curious and yeah. ask about it and learn, or we can just shut it down and look away. And, you know, the latter is not my nature, you know? So I appreciate hearing this because I never thought about that. And, I, and I'm listening to you speak and I'm like, wow, so black people respond differently to treatment. They, they can. They can. They can. Okay. But the thing is, they don't really have the data because a lot of people are going later. So when one of my questions is, I literally was just trying for a baby the same week that I got my first mammogram in this series of mammograms. How, you know, how is this going to affect my ovaries? And they're like, well, you should be fine. Yeah, but be. what you have done, and I don't even know if I don't I don't even know if she got into race, but she was talking about ages, and she's talking about like thirty eight and up on people who've been on Lubron or, you know, the Zolodex or you know whatever, and so not a thirty four year old, mm-hmm. not a thirty four year old black woman, not that, and so I would love for them to use my blood, use my data, use yeah, whatever. Yeah. I would really like to help that because the AYA cancer community is growing exponentially. AYA? Um, yeah, adolescent and young adults. All right. And people just don't, because I mean, there's childhood cancer. And then when you turn 15 or 19, I think it's 13, uh, 15, you're no longer pediatric. Then you go into AYA. And then once you're 40, you're an adult cancer patient. All right. So there are different, there's different needs and there are different asks. Yeah. And I want to go back a moment. And when you said, you know, indigenous people from this land, you know, their response to alcohol, that, that I know about that, right? Like their, their bodies get, they don't have like a, a tolerance to, to the addiction yeah. of alcohol. And again, do I, I've learned very little about this. And so, if, you know, if, if you hear me and you're listening to this and I'm, I totally misspoke right there, you know, my apologies, but my understanding is that for the most part, indigenous people from this land have a natural, like, what am I trying to say? An addiction to alcohol and yes, inability, inability to like, you, yeah. Yeah. To process it in the same way. They have an inability to process it the same way where Irish people invented scotch like <laughs> like they've been drinking it for like five thousand years like egyptians used to make their own alcohol like they're i mean black people have you know sometimes sometimes black people have an intolerance to alcohol and that's why there are early in life like strokes and heart attacks and things like that and so when you try to group everyone together you can't treat everyone the same way even if someone else has stage two her two positive breast cancer you could get in there for your first session and you could have a total reaction like to me I was like okay well I wouldn't give you anything you're allergic to but you don't know if you're allergic to taxol until they pump you full of it I I watched a woman have a reaction in the chair next to me and scared the shit out of me Mm. so like on my very first chemo, you know, the one you're the most afraid of, because you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea yeah. what side effects you're going to get. You know, did you have to go to chemo school? You know, when they told me I was going to get chemo, they showed me the chemo ward 
And all I want to do is run the hell out of there. I was like, yeah. get me away from it. Not knowing it's going to be the most wonderful place I could ever go. Oh, my God. I love chemo Thursdays. Right. And then they it. sit me down. They give me a binder. Yeah. And it's like, you know, four inches thick. You know, here's some information. I'm like, okay, what? Some information? This <laughs> is like all the information. It's like every single, and I appreciate they're trying to gather it, but I'm just like, I was so overwhelmed by that thing. I think it was, it was collecting dust so quickly. Yeah. It's just, it's just huge conversation. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, it was me and my wife and our four month old baby. Oh my gosh. And, and maybe he was, how? I mean, anyway, and as you know, when you go in, as a patient, they're telling you all the treatments you have to go through and what you're thinking is, okay, how are we going to take care of the kids? And they got to go to do this at this time. And, and then how am I going to work? And what's, you know, you're not even hearing the things they're saying to begin with. And they've yeah. got a massive amount of info. Yeah. So another thing that, again, for me, a guy who doesn't give anyone advice, one of the pieces of advice is like, always bring someone to an appointment with you. Oh, always yeah. bring someone because you can't hear what they're saying because you're thinking about how your life's going to work or not work. And then the person with you, they're the one taking notes and, and listening while you're losing your mind. <laughs> yeah. Like just, yeah. So I want to tell you about her reaction. And then we need to go back to Dr. B, mm -hmm. Dr. Bitch, my first doctor. So I'm sitting there and my doctor, he'll make rounds in the infusion room. And he's talking to me. And then this woman, you know, she's kind of just like rocking back and forth. And I'm like, okay, these chairs don't rock. And the recliners. And he was like, hold on. And they're like, code. And I was like, code? we are not in the ER. And he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I got to go take care of this. I'm like, yeah, uh, I think she's having a, she, she needs you. So what had happened was, and I just like kind of jumped back. Like, so that was like my fourth chemo session. I like jumped back in time to my very first chemo session. And I don't remember what drug it was because of my first chemo session, they gave me everything, potassium, iron, Benadryl, Ativan, a bag of saline with every bag of chemo. And then the four chemos, I was there from eight o'clock in the morning till five 30 in the afternoon. And people don't know it takes that long. Like it takes mm -hmm. forever. They give you everything separately. So one of the drugs made me so cold in my body that I had on five blankets. I brought my own blanket and they, and I had four blankets from them that were heated and I was so cold. I felt like I was just outside. And she's like, you okay? Cause you kind of have a lot of blankets. I was like, yeah, I'm just cold. She was like, yeah, if you're cold, like you need to tell us because then maybe we like switch around your drugs. I was like, I'm fine. I'm just a little chilly. So like, that's what happened to this woman. Like I don't, they could not, would not, did not tell me anything about her or, or what, right. you know, what right. happened, what drug it was, but I feel like it was the same drug and not one of the immunotherapies, like literally one of the chemotherapies, but she was just convulsing because she was so cold. Like it was like, she was going into hypothermia oh. and she was just convulsing in her chair and just thank God she wasn't old. Right. Like I think she was like 50. So, you know, they just, they, they brought a bunch of warm jackets on her. They stopped that drug immediately and it was over in like five minutes, but I've never seen anyone like convulse to where like three people are holding you down. Mm. And, and, you know, and 
I've, you know, I've been reading up on people and like, I'll look into something on Instagram and someone will pop up. I reached out to you because like people just need to know about AYA and people need to know to advocate for themselves. So AYA, tell me that one more time. You said it before it's adolescent. Adolescent and young adult. Yeah. It's 15 to 39 confirmed. Yeah. I was 36 the first time I was diagnosed. You were AYA. And if you don't know, yeah, I was diagnosed when I was 36. And then I went and did a non-traditional treatment for 10 months and then did traditional treatment for a year. So then like, what, that put me like two years out. Then a year and a half after that, I was diagnosed in 2011. I was 41 with the metastasis to my liver. And now it's been nine years. But yeah, I was pretty young, 36. It's not in my family. They did not have any reason to think I had cancer. My doc told me four different times I had hemorrhoids. After like seven months, I asked to see a specialist. Yeah. They were like, well, you have to go to your primary to be referred to a specialist. I said, well, who else can I go to there? Well, we can go to the PA that works under him, the physician's assistant. I said, please do. And so I get a scan or no i go in to see the specialist to get a scope and he gives me a digital first words out of his mouth do you have cancer in your family i'm like not really and he puts then he does the scope he's like there's so much blood i can't see anything oh my god you need to have a colonoscopy to get the colonoscopy they're like yeah you have cancer and then determined it was like what stage two t four or something which meant like it was like it had gone through the outer membrane of the rectum and it hadn't gone into a lymph node, but it looked like it was trying to give it a kiss. You know what I mean? It yeah. was getting real close and intimate with it. So they kind of like, you're not stage three, but we're going to hit you real hard with chemo. We're going to hit you as hard as we can. You're 36. You can handle it. They're like, we're going to bring it, bring it to the brink of death and hold off. So that this was a red can't... dragon. No, I did not get that crazy stuff. I had five FU and radiation. And radiation just bloated. You know, the five of you makes you feel terrible. I got sores in my mouth. The radiation on my rectum. So I'm getting hit on the anus with radiation. Oh my God. It's going right to my testicles. They have me in this. Did they make a mold for you? No, they didn't. What they do is they, they put three tiny tattoos on my backside so they can triangulate where they're aiming. You know, so they don't. So they could go to the same spot like every time. Right. Yeah. But, you know, they put you in this, like, lead vest to protect your body from the radiation. But I'm, like, looking back, I'm like, why didn't you wrap my testicles in, like, a lead little little testicle vest? Because, like, you know, they got, they got hit so hard. First of all, they tell me oh that God. I'm going to be sterile. So, you know, if you want to, like, but I already had a kid. So we didn't. And my wife did not want to have any more. It was her second kid. And so, like, my testicles, I had boils on them the size of my thumbnail. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Red boil the size of my thumbnail with four or five whiteheads on each one. I was walking like a bow-legged cowboy. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I could spend an entire two-hour podcast telling you about the side effects just your, from the five balls. and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my anus. A sunburn on my anus from the radiation. And then a sunburn on the sunburn. And then a sunburn on the sunburn. And they sunburn the sunburn for five and a half weeks. And people who've had rectal cancer, I was, I, at one point, I always laugh. I mean, I'll, I'll cry and I'll be on my knees and then I'll be laughing. And I'm looking at my radiologist and I'm laughing. I'm like, what in the hell? Like, I don't even want to know 
what the bad radiations are like. Yeah. She's like, well, sorry, but like the you're getting it. She goes, the only radiation more painful than this, and this was back in 2008, said the only radiation more painful than this is sinus. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've been learning about all these rare cancers. There's heart cancer. Did you know that? No. I just found that out this week. That's insane. Like, there's so many cancers and so many, you know, we think organs. Oh, no, there's cancers in your blood. There's cancers in the the, mucinous carcinomas. Uh, Guest on episode, season one, episode four, Carrie Ann Kemp, she had an error made when they did the breast cancer, the breast biopsy. And as a result, they pulled out some mucinous carcinoma that's in the cancer that surrounds the tumor. And if they hadn't made the mistake, the tumor, the mass would have come out as benign. But they found the cancer in the mucus that was surrounding it. It's just like, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's fascinating and it's heartbreaking. So that's the thing with my cancer too, right? Had the doctor appointment in May. They felt nothing. I do my self-examinations. I felt nothing. The best way to describe this, because I asked my oncologist yesterday if this was the best way to describe it, because I knew that you and I were going to speak today, is like, there is just glitter in one of my milk ducts. That is my cancer. I don't have a tumor. I don't have a lesion. I think what they did was they just chose like whatever was the biggest combination of the calcifications to call the tumor, but you cannot feel anything. So again, while I'm fighting to get these mammograms, this cancer was only detected by mammogram. And I had told my doctor, I'm like, man, my armpit feels really weird. And I was seeing like a substitute doctor since my OB was uh, COVID leave. And he was like, yeah, that's an ingrown hair from shaving. And I was like, well, number one, I use very cheap razors and I only use them once. So I have never had an ingrown hair in my armpit. And it turned out that it was my lymph nodes. So appointment number one with Dr. Bitch. Um, I should probably yes, back to Dr. B. Back to Dr. B. So yeah, she's sitting there telling me, she's like, you're stage one. And I'm like, I can deal with that, right? So when you're diagnosed and you're a woman who's 30, 30, or 34, the statistic, and this is proven, is that 41% of AYA cancer patients are consulted on reproductive options, their reproductive future, and endocrinology. So only 40% are getting spoken to about that. My doctor... Dr. Bitch talked to me about it. Now, how um, did she earn this? Uh, oh, this name? okay. That is that is what it is. She's like, you have stage one. It's grade three. It's her two positive. So, it, you know, I just want to let you know, we're past the point of a lumpectomy. This is a mastectomy. And I was like, okay, well, I'm like, no, it's a double mastectomy. I've always wanted one. And that is what I will be getting. 
Well, I really want to talk to you about that because like, you know, you said you want more kids and like, what if you want to breastfeed them? I was like, no, I want to be alive for them. She was like, well, the chance of reoccurrence with a single mastectomy and just a reconstruction on your other breast, the chance of reoccurrence is seven to 9%. And I was like, okay, now if you had said zero to 2%, I might have listened, but you said seven to nine, which is really 10. And when you tell me there's a 10% chance that I'm gonna have to do all these things you're telling me I have to do all over again, with more children later and God forbid, not my family unit to assist. This is a double mastectomy situation. And if you question me again, this whole appointment's over. And she's like, okay, well, that's fine. The next thing I wanna tell you is HER2 is very aggressive. And since you do have grade three, the second place it goes is directly to your brain. So we have to get you a brain CT to determine whether you're curable or treatable. So in the first 15 minutes, I'm told I'm stage one, even though I've had no CT, I've had no PET, I've had no MRI, I've, you have not checked out my lymph nodes, nothing. And then you've just told me that I might be fucking metastatic with a side of brain cancer. And that's why she's Dr. Bitch. So then she checks me out. She checks out my, she gives me a breast exam and she checks out my lymph nodes. And she's like, they're all swollen. It mm. could be a cold. It could be stress, but I want to biopsy these. And that will also change your stage. Okay. So now we're like two hours into the appointment where we started with stage one, which depending on what your genetic test comes back as, um, you may not have to have chemo if you're stage one. I, as well as I think everyone is, is terrified of chemo. You see the picture and the reason why I wanted to do this and the reason why I did a photo shoot exactly halfway through chemo when you feel your shittiest is to show people what cancer can look like you don't know if you have cancer and if I throw on my hot wig that I got for my birthday you don't know I have cancer you don't know that so women are walking around here with prosthetic breasts because their body won't take an implant there it goes on and on but I just think people and rightfully so people are terrified and it sucks but I don't know if I want to die at 40 because I was too pussy to just go get a mammogram get drunk first they don't fucking breathalyze you but I did for the (laughs) third one like shit Take it. My doctor prescribed me Xanax. He's like, Lauren, I know you. I know you've never been through anything like this. And you need, you need something because my brain doesn't stop working. It doesn't. And I've been pushing myself harder now. So I don't get chemo brain. You Mm. know what I'm saying? Like, 
I, I am pushing it to the limit. If it's inevitable that I'm going to get it, it's inevitable, but I just need the best. I need to be the best I can be because right now, like I, like I want more kids. Like we want three kids. So yeah, she did a biopsy of my lip node. It came back positive. So that pushed me to stage two. Yeah. So that was another punch in the gut. That was, I don't know if it was the next day or two days later, but it was another Friday. You know, I don't, as steadfast and determined as I am, I don't know how many times more I could have heard, like, you're too young. You can just go home. Like, you know what? Like, we'll write this off. Don't worry about it. You do not need to be here. I don't know how many times hearing that I would have started to believe it and then just not gone back until I was 40. Mm. And if I have grade three, stage two at, at 34, because this was that this was in September, my birthday is in October. This happened in 18 months. So I know that there's growth and plateau and, or it could just be super aggressive and whatever. But then again, remember, I don't have a tumor. I had nothing to feel. Yeah. So do the calcifications just get bigger? Like those are the things that roll around in my mind. But I will say I got in as soon as I could due to COVID, due to literally having a new baby. Cause like in July, like he was 16 months old, (laughs) like, you know, so that's just what really threw me over. You know, I called all my, all my nurse friends, all everyone I knew in oncology, my best friend helped me out. I had three doctor's appointments that day, the day that I met with Dr. Bitch. They were like, they can see you right now. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I'll do this. I did my interview on my phone and in the car for my new job on my way to another oncologist. Oh my and, goodness. And then later to the onco- uh, my new oncology surgeon. And everyone was great. They were like, I totally support you with a double mastectomy. Like, yes. And, and they confirmed all the information. Yes, recurrence is 7 to 9%, but it's like... Um, I don't know if it would be better to have had a doctor who had cancer because they see a lot and they know a lot, you know, but I I don't know what is seven. I mean, for someone like you, what a, what a mindfuck like to be, you know, diagnosed again. But initially if they had told you seven to 9%, would you not? do anything not to do that? Or are, are you okay with seven to 9%? I, it sounds like what I'm hearing from you. I will deal with whatever issues a double mastectomy brings to me, but those issues will not include a recurrence in my breasts. That's for damn sure. Like not <laughs> you at that point, you know, like one of my questions was, was there anything I did? to cause this, right? right. Because mm-hmm. if you have a different kind of cancer, it might've been a birth control you were on. It might've been the Depo-Vera shot. It, it could have been anything. It could have been your diet. I will say before I got out of one of my groups, like group therapy on Instagram, this guy made me laugh. I literally pissed my pants. <laughs> there was, you know, there's this girl and she was like, um, you really should be like encouraging and inspiring people to eat more healthy, especially people that are in treatment. And then the host was like, am I 
am I here to inspire? I'm not. Like I have had cancer and I literally work in the cancer ward. I see shit. I've gone through shit. And if you want like glitter in a rainbow cancer page, you should start your own. This is for real people going through real things. I have literally cried so hard that I've thrown up. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's un, it's insane. Like, you know, I got, you know, I got the news and then after everything came back, you know, it was official stage two. And the one thing about Dr. Bitch, she's, she's the oncology surgeon, right? So with breast cancer, I guess you like meet with them first, but honestly, like the oncologist is like the quarterback, like, you know, the surgeon's like the nickel slot. You might be like the receiver at times. Like you are not the coach. I'm, I'm the coach. Right. And the oncologist is the quarterback. I mean, you mm-hmm. can even switch those around, but those two people are running everything. So, you know, she would call, I, I just have like such a good connection with my oncologist. He literally gave me his cell phone number because I knew his nurse, right? Like mm. personally. And I was like, I'm not going to abuse this. Um, I will, I will just be calling you if it's like very serious or whatever. And he's like, I've, I met you 10 minutes ago. You're very organized and I know you want to abuse this. It really might just be his work cell phone, but whatever. He gave me a cell phone number and he always mm-hmm. sends back. So what I loved about my oncologist is that I'm getting all these tests. And for people who don't know, I don't know how they would know, if, you know, you're a very established podcast, but when you get the PET scan and you're all radioactive, like I swallowed that pill from the Simpsons, like I, I want to know what you found. Like you're looking for cancer all over my body and you don't get that testing back for quite some time. So I'm already dealing with, with Dr. B, the the first doctor, they've called me twice. Like, Oh, she changed her schedule. She wanted to leave early today. So can we like push you to tomorrow? It's like, no, I have job interviews, the job I work right now. Like I have no flexibility, but what really nailed it in the coffin for me was that my oncologist was on top of it and his PA or the, the oncological like nurse called me the day of, or the next day with my scan results. Those are super important things for a type A anxiety ridden person who's just been told that I have cancer. And, and you're telling me that you're doing all these things to see if there's cancer anywhere else. And then I'm getting calls from Dr. B, uh, her scheduling assistant, because she wants to leave early where we would be going over those test results. And then also like when I say I am of everything that's happened since September 4th, her tell, like, I will never, when it's silent, like I have to be surrounded by noise. Like I have PTSD from the way that she told me that her too goes from your breast to your lymph nodes directly to your brain. I will never forget that sentence. I will never forget the cadence in her voice. I will never forget how she told me. That is the, that is the most dramatic thing that's happened to me. And I'm a black woman in America in 2021. Like, so for her to tell me like that would just like, like, I don't even think she blinked. And she's like, and we'll know when the CT comes back. Are you- So it was just too matter of fact for you? I don't even think that was a matter of fact. It was like, go fuck yourself. 
these are these are facts like it wasn't matter of fact it was just like so let's see what's up there let's like it was almost like let's see how long you've neglected yourself when you you could have asked me I've been getting mammograms since I was 30 and you just gave me a breast exam and you cannot feel this cancer so don't judge me like it was more of like a judgy like let's see how long you've let yourself go it was like that and how did you get that from what she said I'm just trying to follow you like that it goes straight to the brain mm-hmm. yeah so it was just like okay so you know it's definitely in your lymph nodes we've biopsied well no 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 because that was at the end of the appointment she's like yeah just you know and then it just goes straight to your brain and i was like what like what are you talking about and she's like and then at that point you'd be metastatic and then we would figure out if you were treatable or, or curable and i'm like stop because Five minutes ago, you just said I was stage one. And now metastatic is, it's literally stage four. Like there's no metastatic stage one. So you have just contradicted yourself. Why are you staging anyone before the PET, the CT, the MRI? And it was just like that. And then, you know, like that's when I started crying because I care about being here for my son. I care about my job, bringing in an income, supporting my household. But it was just like for her, it was just like, you're number two for today. I have 20 appointments. There are going to mm. be people that are probably worse off than you. I don't know where you're crying right now. And I was like, you know, because I Googled stage one and it said lumpectomy, and radiation, which exactly, which is exactly what my grandmother did. Radiation and a lumpectomy. And now we are in double mastectomy territory. Might be in my brain. And it's a 10 minute difference. All right. So like there was no empathy. There was no compassion. There was no, there was no, you know, being with where you are with this and then bringing the conversation into where you are. It was just like, she just dropped it on you. Like, and now I got to go kind of. Yeah. So like I had legal pads with the questions, which she, she was there to answer. She was like, do you have any more questions? I see that you have things. She answered all my questions but she answered all my questions that way. Well, we really don't know until. We really don't know until. Well, then you should not have started your sentence with, hi, I'm Dr. Bitch, and you have stage one, grade three, HER2 positive. When you're about to give me a biopsy of my lip nodes in your office. Like that, it, that just wasn't it for me. And I'm scarred. And now I'm getting another, I have an MRI on my brain scheduled next week which after this call i'm probably going to call and see if anybody canceled so i can get in sooner to make mm-hmm. sure it's not in my brain my mri post chemo came back so great there's no cancer Good. in my lymph nodes anymore Good. there is no cancer in my breast anymore they haven't declared me NED, but the the glitter smattering as i like to liken it to you gone Mm-hmm. also they were talking about they had given me an MRI like a in, dye enhance on my left breast because it was just so dense and they wanted to make sure there wasn't anything in there they literally like held my breast in place and drilled in three different places into the very dense part mm. I mean I didn't feel a thing but it, it was right. a really hearty 
recovery from that. So there was like, you know how I was saying there was like a dense part and then like an, an opaque in the left breast that's actually gone now. So like, you know, I was talking to my husband about it last night. I'm like, was that pre-cancer? You know, in the other breast? Was it just like very slowly? Because they said it came back benign. So there actually was like a tumor-esque kind of thing that wasn't inductal invasive carcinoma. It was just like this really thick, couldn't see through it area. And that, and that mm. part's gone now too, because of chemo. So after they I check- I thought it was all removed though. Huh? I thought the double mastectomy, I thought everything was removed. Well, I haven't had surgery. Oh. Yeah, so I just finished chemo yesterday. Yesterday was my sixth session. And you rang that bell. I rang, that, I rang the hell out of that bell. My mastectomy is scheduled for March 2nd. Double mastectomy. And then I have to March have... March 2nd. All right, you are a rock star. Ladies and gentlemen, this woman just finished chemo yesterday, <laughs> and she's on my podcast. Yeah. first thing in the morning. <laughs> but yeah, so I... So I'll have the double mastectomy. I'll have spacers. And then I've got radiation because it was in my lymph nodes. They will biopsy my lymph nodes during surgery. See how many they have to take. Right now it's looking like one, hopefully, because that would, you know, reduce any kind of lymphedema if I had like, you know, the less they take. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, like I'm like, I'm only one third done with the, with the journey. But yeah, All the right. MRI came back great. So, okay, so this was my wonky question, right? Mm-hmm. It's super wonky because it comes from Real Housewives. But I'm not familiar with the show, but I believe you. Okay. <laughs> this guy on Real Housewives, it's Denise Richards' new husband. He does a lot of like homeopathic medicines and like infrared and crystals and all this stuff. And he said one thing that was it made me stop my tracks and he said that cancer and like the reason why tumors are formed is because there is you know a foreign body like inside of your body and and your body has encapsulated encapsulated it right and then that's why you have a tumor so whatever that cancer was made of didn't kill you instantly And that made me think, I'm like, dude, you're a wacko. You're a quacko. But then when I hear my uncle, my new, fantastic, I'm going to call her Megan. She's amazing. My new oncology surgeon. I'm probably Hmm. oncological surgeon. I don't know these, whatever. Um, She's incredible. But, you know, I I was asking, because when we were going over my treatment plan, I'm like, you know, if I'm stage one, like, why do I even have to have chemo, right? And they're like, well, you can't cut into a live tumor. Like, it's, you know, it's got to be dead. It's got to be smaller. We have to be able to work around it. And when I heard that, I mean, because this is well before I had cancer, I was like, that doesn't sound too far-fetched. Like, what do you think about that? What it points to is, you know, what I've always been curious about, you know, how much energy, how much time, how much money is going toward the origin of cancer? Because right now we're treating what seems to me to be a symptom. The cancer 
the malignant cells in the body are a result of something happening in the body. So good, you're treating the malignant cells. You're, you're doing whatever you can to stop the production of these malignant cells and removing them when it's a possibility, when it's an option. But where's it all coming from? Yeah. Why is it happening? Who's researching that? Oh, so that reminds me. That, that was the last day of uh, my group therapy. And this guy, the one who made me pee my pants, um, I love him. I did not get his name. I mean, I wouldn't like blast him on this anyway, but, uh, I love what he said. So, and I don't think I, I don't think I told you what he said. So this one girl was like, um, yeah, you should be inspiration. You should tell people to eat healthier, blah, blah, blah. They're in treatment. First off, one of my friends who was in treatment, she got breast cancer at 28 years old. Um, and that's again, why I am. I've just turned into an advocate for like an advocate um, activist, like for AYA, because people are listening to the people they should be able to trust. And they're like, no, you're not getting your mammogram until you're 40. And they're trying to push it to mm. 45. They're trying to make the normal 45 when a 40% of cancer patients are AYA. That's crazy. But oh this, gosh. so this one girl, you know, after the whole inspirational bitch, because she, I'm gonna call her a bitch, um, because I don't need inspiration right now. What I need is realism, and I want cotton candy. So um, the one lady under her is like, I'm a marathon runner. I don't drink. I don't smoke. And I only eat organic. I don't eat meat. And I have stage three cancer. So I'm gonna tell you, it's not from food. And then the next guy down, the guy I'm in love with, he was like, I'm a fat fuck. <laughs> and he's like, I drink bourbon every day. I smoke at least a cigar a week. And I like huge, rare porterhouse steaks. And I have colon cancer. And I'm sure that counted to it. But you know what? I still have it. And I have to fight this right now. So I don't need your toxic po positivity. Because you can have toxic positivity. Like, mm -hmm. and be guilting people into things. We all already have cancer. I don't need your toxic positivity. My Xanax is enough positivity for me I, I, every four hours. Okay? So leave me alone. And you don't know what people are going through. Like, I'm running a business. I'm running a house. I'm a mom. Like, of a 20, he's now 22 months old. Like, he's, it, that's an insane age. And then, like, now I'm about to have a double mastectomy where, like, I can't see him for a week. Because he doesn't know his own strength. Don't want him to rip a drain or a stitch. Like, this is real life. When I first got diagnosed after, when I formally got diagnosed with my new doctor, I told my mom, and this is this is the funny part, because I don't know if we've laughed yet. But I told my mom that I wanted to make like a 50 first dates video. And it needs to play every morning when I wake up. Because you're diagnosed and you haven't started your treatment yet, they've got to put everything into insurance, make sure it's approved, all that other crap. Plus, I started IVF. So, like, I was diagnosed on 9-4. I started IVF on 9-21. They shoved eight weeks of IVF healthily into three weeks. IVF. Yeah in vitro fertilization to, okay, to right, make right, the yep. embryos. So we have mm -hmm. three little boys on ice. 
they've had genetic testing. But yeah, like when you still have your hair, right? And you feel fine because you haven't started chemo. You feel like you felt yesterday. You need a video that's like, hey, good morning. Don't freak out. It's me. You have cancer. It's stage two. Get your black ass up. Go for a jog. By jog, I mean walk because we never jog. Eat a vegetable this morning. I'm, I'm really going to eat my vegetables. It's like a lunch or a dinner, but I've been throwing like smooth, um, spinach and even broccoli like into my smoothies. It's just like, just make your smoothie and don't worry about it. You know, you got a couple of appointments next week, but you're going to be okay. And like, I feel like for the first 30 days before your treatment starts, that might help people because Sometimes even now I forget, like I forget I have cancer because I don't live in the cancer. Mm. For me, I feel like I have cancer every three weeks when I go to chemo because then the next day I'm shitting my brains out. But Mm. like, but other than that, I'm just bald and I'm tired after like, so like today I'll be a rock. Yesterday I was a rock star. Today I'll be a rock star. Tomorrow till about two, I'll be all right. Then I'll sleep for two whole days, right. and then I'm fine for another two weeks. And I know it's not like that for some people, and I feel guilt. Like I feel guilty. It's almost like survivor's remorse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's like, to be honest, I, I always knew I would get cancer. Because it's in your family? Because of my family and because of the trash human I was when I was in my 20s, like, literally, I'd be like, ah, oh, that's somebody else's half a hamburger. I don't give a shit. Like, whatever. <laughs> Just stuff like that. Just going on trips, flying spirit air. I knew I would get cancer. <laughs> I just didn't think I would get cancer at 34. I mm. thought I would get cancer at 64. And I will say, I kind of... I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I have it now because I feel like maybe it's easier to, to take the drugs and the symptoms. You're a healthy, mm-hmm. I'm quote unquote, I'm a healthy 35 year old. I mean, before this, I was working out five days a week, quarantine sometimes twice a day because whenever the weather was nice, yeah. I would take chip on a jog and then I would work out by myself. Still can't go to the gym. So, you know, did everything I, I could mm. here, bought resistance bands and you have two feet, you can like walk. But I, I always knew I would get cancer. So when they told me it was a punch in the gut, but I didn't, I didn't lose all my wind. There was a punch in the gut you weren't expecting to receive at now. an early place in your life that you weren't expecting to hear now. Yeah. Especially after all the silly calls. They were like, hey, you dumb bitch, you're 30. You got a mammogram. It's clear. Awesome. Have a great day. And I'm like, I will because I'm already day drinking. Thank you. <laughs> and so then I thought how I thought that's how these calls would go. And it right. didn't. And then you've got and you have so much to prepare for. Like I have a week and a half where I'm not where I'm not great. Like I'm, I don't drink coffee. I haven't drank coffee in 16 years. I think coffee's gross and just like jacks you up and then you need more and whatever. But yeah, like I don't drink coffee and I don't like, don't do anything, but I've got a high level of energy. 
and you know the chemo like super zaps that so like maybe just a week there's like a week where I'm like not really myself and then I'm two weeks where I'm good and I'm cooking and I'm freezing and you, you've got to plan you've got to plan the grocery deliveries because no one can go anywhere my husband can't go anywhere my kid definitely can right. only go to his grandparents because it's all connected and I just don't think a lot of people think about everything that's going into it like one of my good friends who like brought a casserole, she was like, yes, oh my God, your last chemo is next week. And I was like, yeah. And then, you know, six weeks later, I'll have surgery. She's like, surgery. why are you having surgery? I'm like, everyone who has cancer has surgery. Like if you have had cancer in your body, they have to cut out where it touched. If you have a cancer that can be removed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So she's like, oh, I didn't know you were having surgery. I'm like, I'm having a bilateral like mastectomy. She was like, oh my God, Lauren. And I was like, and then I have to have five weeks of radiation. And then I have to have two more breast surgeries because I have to have spacers put in because you can't have implants put in when you have radiation because it will warp them. And the radiation kills the skin. It, the skin is no longer like malleable or pliable or stretchy where you have radiation so I may even have to get a fat graft taken from my stomach to replace the fat that's zapped mm. radiation so I have to have spacers in that they will fill every Friday with more cc's to the space that I'd like to get to and then, I mean, while this is all going on, so I will still have immunotherapy until September. So I like, I'm done with chemo, but I'm not done with my immunotherapy. I get, yeah. I also have that every three weeks until the middle of September. I will have at least three breast surgeries because I have to have radiation and <laughs> still do all this other stuff. Like, yeah, there's a couple of things that you've said that I want to address. One is, that yes, this is far more than people tend to realize. Like, you know, when I was diagnosed in 2007, we had a note on the door that said, if you're not feeling well, please do not enter this home. If you've been around someone who's not feeling well, if you've thought about not feeling well, please right. do not enter this home. Like, my immune system is so weak, and now you bring COVID into it, it's just like, mm-mm. Mm -mm. Like you, you, you cannot risk it. And you said something earlier that really struck me about the person who's saying like, you know, this toxic positivity where you need to eat healthier. What I find is like, if this woman has found that eating a specific kind of diet, whether she said it was organic or plant-based, whatever it was, if that has her feeling empowered, if that has her feel strong, if that inspires her and lifts her up, fantastic yeah but good there, for you what was missing was an awareness of that what works for you doesn't work for everybody when i was getting radiation my large intestine my intestines were so bloated i was so gassy and in so much pain my wife says to me you're not eating you need to eat i'm like i don't want to eat i don't have an appetite food make mm -hmm. she's like you need to eat i'm like food makes me gag she's yeah. like baby you got to eat and I got like all choked up. I'm like, if I tell you what I want to eat, you're not going to get it for me. She's like, what? I will get you anything. I go, I want 
chicken wings and waffle fries with cheese on them. And she's like got tears in her eyes as she's driving to the wings over Ithaca, this little wing joint here in town, and just brought back enough chicken wings and waffle fries with cheese for like two days. I was just like, I was caught up in the belief that, you know, unhealthy food is not good for me. And she's like, no, what's worse for you? No food. Exactly. Because you get with chemo and radiation on the, on, for the rectal cancer, it's just like everything grossed me out. I didn't want to eat anything. And people have called me and said, like, you know, I want my friend to eat healthier, my brother to eat healthier, or my whatever sibling. And they had just got diagnosed the other day. So we're trying to think of what's the healthiest thing to do. But he, he doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to eat really healthy food. He wants to stick with his diet. And I say, you know, first of all, I'm not a doctor. And so you shouldn't ever listen to anything I say. Right. But if you're asking me, if this person you love and care about has cancer, and they're looking at how to start treatment. And so you got what, you know, six, eight weeks before things really get rolling. How long has that cancer been growing in their body? How many years did it take? And yeah. if my man just wants to eat a cheeseburger because he's stressing out and crying about the fact that he might die, get yeah. him two and a Pepsi. Like, stop. Yeah. And again, everyone and who's listening. <laughs> and, and a cookie. cookie. And a cookie. And a donut. And if you're listening, no, I'm not an authority and don't listen to me. I'm just saying what I said. And then it's like, come on, that food in this little window of time. Because what I did is I started eating. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. I, I made a green juice. You know what my green juice was? My wife wasn't home. It was like the first day. I bought a head of kale and I poured some water in the blender with kale and I blended it and drank it. And I was nasty. She laughed so hard at me. She's like, terrible. what are you doing, fool? Because I didn't know. It's just... It, it was that panic of like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And now I've had some time to breathe. I've had cancer twice, unfortunately. And I'm just like, you know what? Like, if you need to go eat something, some comfort food to feel better, just do it. If that's going to be your long-term plan, and again, don't ask me for advice because I shouldn't give it to you, but I'd be like, hmm, I don't know, maybe that's not such a good idea. That's not a good idea. But, but... in the moment... But like, but like in treatment, right? So like I, I mean, I've asked... Every doctor I have. What did I eat way too much of the other day? Oh, yeah. It was, like, back on my birthday. And I always get, like, a half dozen. And I ate, like, four. Of what? And I was, of cupcakes. Oh. And I was, like, is this bad? And he's, like, no, it's not. Like, when you're in treatment, uh, I'm not a doctor. But, like, the, the chemo's there to kill everything. So, like until you're like you have to just survive chemo mentally physically emotionally like you have to just survive so I did what I had to do to get over that but now I'm in treatment and I was like man what like I'm not I oh yeah I was telling you earlier like I lost my sense of taste like in the middle of my tongue only like the part you use <laughs> like, mm -hmm. so then that that's what's like oh man like is it in my brain because I never forget her words you know that's a brain thing <laughs> but back to BRCA my BRCA came back negative on all 96 to 115 variations that they tested mm. so I don't know if anyone said this on any of your previous podcasts but I would like to say that there are multiple ways that you can get screened and please don't just use one. 
Because like I said earlier, I've always wanted a double mastectomy. So I would never have to go through this. I, I, I never, <laughs> never, no one ever wants to do this. This is not great. Mm-hmm. N- not great is an understatement. But my BRCA came back negative, which is a which is good news in the midst of all the news, all the info. Yeah. But it means I'm not predisposed to any other like reproductive cancers and any of the cancers that anyone in my family has had. So like good. brain leukemia, thing, mm-hmm. if they got it genetically, if they got it from an external source or, or like the life they were living. I don't know. But it, it was really good news for my mom and my sister because they, the day I was diagnosed, I mean, they made their appointments and you know they're clear. But uh, yeah, so my BRCA came back negative. So I have been trying to get a BRCA test approved through my insurance for three years and they've turned me down. It's a cup that you spit in. It's a vial that you spit in and send back. Mm. My insurance covered it all after my diagnosis, but I think it was like 400 bucks. Again, it's not that the one that the doctor ordered for me was like $400 and my insurance covered it. So if it's saving lives or saving money for the insurance company to, for you to let people get mammograms at 30 and freaking get, you know, BRCA testing, Start starting at 30. I mean, again, had a friend who got it at 28. Maybe you can Brock at 25. It's just, it's wild because early detection is key. My first EOB that I got for e- EOB um, explanation of benefits for my insurance company mm. for my first round of chemo was $65,000. Mm. who can afford that right so think about the people who you know get this diagnosis i know it's different if you don't have i know the cost is different but i didn't know what it was going to cost right why would you i i had already met my deductible and out-of-pocket max thank god from all the testing Mm -hmm. all the testing killed it so when I got it, I just, I, I just laughed because I was like, okay, good luck. Right. I don't I barely have any blood left. They took it all yesterday. I can't even pay in blood. <laughs> but yeah, 65K for eight and a half hours. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of money. What I have been told is that the reason that cancer scanning and testing doesn't happen is because it's a money game and it's more expensive to test that many people than to just treat the people. You know, there comes a point where it's less expensive to test people, you know, like colonoscopies. It used to be age 50. Now I think they're dropping it down to 45 in most places because it's more cost effective to test people sooner. It's a, I mean, I don't know how much all my treatments cost, but I would imagine two cancer diagnoses both yeah. with six months of chemo that followed it and two major surgeries. And I mean, a million dollars. Oh, that's a lot of dough. I'm only, I really wish there was like a thermometer where it's like, you're 34% done. But I really just, I really hope and pray that just like everything else is straightforward. And I, like I said, the MRI results were really good. 
I, I mean, I asked for the second brain MRI because I cannot get that woman's words out of my head. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like, oh, I have a headache. Is that cancer? Like, you know what I mean? It's, I, I have cancer, so it could be cancer. Yes. Then my toe starts oh, feeling yeah. funny for a couple of days and I don't remember bumping it. And I start thinking I must have cancer in my toe. Yeah. Like I've got bone cancer now. My breathing gets a little funny and I start thinking, oh, now I got lung cancer. You know, I've learned that this voice in my head doesn't need to have as much of my attention as it used to. Yeah. In the early days, like where you are, like anything, boom. And then I got diagnosed a second time. And, you know, when I had it the first time, I'm like, this is going to be it. It's going to be gone. It was gone. I'm like, see, I'm good. When it came back a second time, that knocked me on my knees because I was like, okay, I was wrong. Like any illusion of immortality is completely shattered now. Yeah. And it's been, uh, it was 2011, it's been nine years now that I've been uh, NED. And I've come to be less, how would I say, uh, less, I've come to be less triggered by consistent odd sensations in my body. It yeah. still comes up. I still think, oh, shit, I got cancer again. But then I'm like, well, actually, dude, you've got, you got a 50-year-old body in good shape and taking care of yourself. But it's, it's a body. I remember asking my mom, like, I have this weird sensation. And, you know, I was like, you know five or eight you know i get this weird sensation in my abdomen and it feels like this is doing this and you say oh well maybe it's gas i'm like oh, okay and off i go play again you know hey mom my arm feels weird there's a strange tingling going on and this and that she goes well maybe it's this i go oh, okay you know but now in my life i've had cancer it's like oh i have a strange sensation in my body must have cancer again <laughs> well and so what really like drove me nuts was i was like you guys wanted a ct an mri and a pet when i was diagnosed what i want is a CT, an MRI, and a PET after chemo. And I think that I think that would be great for you to compare and contrast what we got going on. And they were like, you do know that like multiple pets like cause cancer. Like, like it causes cancer like 10 years down the road. And I was like, no, I didn't because I don't know anything about cancer. I don't want another cancer just because I was trying to make sure all the cancer was gone from my body. But they were like, yeah, if you want another pet, you have to like sign like a ton of paperwork. Yeah, I've had a few. That was, that was way back. Yeah, but I think it's like when they're just like not needed. Right. right? right they're yeah. like, Lauren, it's these elective pet scans yeah i think we're gonna they they said they think they're gonna like down scale me but like i don't if i had two before treatment just because it now looks like one i don't think i have stage one they're like well we won't know anything until during surgery and i'm like okay well after surgery i should be nothing because you're taking everything that had the cancer. Yeah, so what I've learned over the years and through so many conversations with survivors is that we get a diagnosis, and they say, what's the treatment protocol? And they, they give it to you, and what's the prognosis? Okay, and then they take the first step, and then it changes. You're like, well, wait, I thought it was this. Like, it was, but then when we did further, after we did this for you, you know, let's say after we did surgery, we looked and we saw it was different. Or after we gave you this much chemo, we noticed that, you know, it didn't totally take care of X, Y, and Z. You know, it, it changes every time there's 
another step once they've completed the process. You know, they go in, they do your surgery. They go, oh, well, when we did the surgery, we did, we did a pathology, and then we, we discovered X. So we want to give you more of, you know, I'm just, you know, and one, I'm not trying to scare you, and two, I'm also saying, like, it's each one of us finds, as you said, like, it's unique. Our journey is unique, and they, you know, for me, you know, they did my uh, pre-chemo radiation and surgery. Then I waited X number of weeks. They did my surgery. They did the pathology. And then they gave me the chemo. And it all went as planned. Yeah. Just that now and again, you know, a person's treatment can change based on the results. Like, you know, you're saying how they've had the chemo. And now you're going to have the surgery. So it sounds to me like, well, okay, great. You're having a double mastectomy. So they're Everything. taking everything out. So there's not going to be any place for it to still be. Well, see, and that's what I thought, too. And then that's why I had to get out of the groups because I ended up, number one, I ended up the first time in a metastatic group. And that is terrifying. Different conversation. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's why I had to get out of the groups because even with – um. You know, the non-metastatic group, one of the ladies was like, yeah, they found um, that the cancer came back like in the muscle of my chest wall. And I'm like, that can happen. Like, I don't need that. No, like, I don't need to know all the possibilities. I'm not an oncologist. I'm not going back to school for it. All I want to know is what I have going on what I can do to never have this happen again. But like, and, and I'm talking about people who have had double mastectomies. So it's like mm. this cancer was just destined to be here. And I'm just like, this is insane. It's insane. It is. It's completely insane. And then once so for me, once my chemo was over, you know, because I had surgery and, you know, I have chemo and radiation and there's all these nurses and, and just all around me taking care of me and the doctor now and again. Then I had my surgery and I'm in the hospital and the doctors, you know, he's wonderful and the nurses were great. And then I go home for four weeks and then I go and I get six months of chemo. And every two weeks I'm getting chemo. I had like a bazillion treatments, about 13 or something, I don't even remember. And I was sick and laid out and miserable. And the nurses were all there and all caring for me. Mm -hmm. Then I ring the bell, and that's wonderful, and treatment's over. And then I go home, and I get tested every mm -hmm. three months. And Lauren, it's just crickets. Yeah. It's silent. I was surrounded by people who my health and well-being felt like their number one priority to me. You know, It was when I was with them. And then I go home, and I'm like... I'd go in the hospital for something. I'd stop by the chemo lab. I'd want to see my nurses because I, I, I started to realize, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, it, as a man, it took a lot for me to let myself mm -hmm. be cared for. And then when they say, how are you feeling to actually tell them versus like try to put on a good face. And so when I finally opened up, it was a level of vulnerability that I was unfamiliar with and I let them care for me and I let, and I opened up and I relied upon their wisdom and experience and training and then treatment ended and it was just quiet and i was like it was like when i came home with the baby for the first time i'm like they just let us yep. come home with this baby <laughs> we're allowed to just have a baby in our house like don't we have to like <laughs> you feel because you're like yeah. it's so vulnerable and then so when treatment ended i was just you're like, left high and dry it got real quiet 
I heard that's where like a lot of the PTSD comes from. And, you know, it's almost like a Munchausen, like a, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this hurts. Can you check this out? Oh, this doesn't feel right. Can you check this out? Like a lot. I hear a lot of people do that. Yeah. It's just like that you go from being cared for to it suddenly having no one around. And I wish that my doctors and nurses had said, look, when, when you ring that bell and you go home and you're all done, life's going to get real quiet. And it's it can be a bit of a shock. The cancer journey continues even though it's gone. I mean, sure, I'm creating a podcast, so it's become you know a major part of my life. But prior to the podcast, it was just like, you know, oh, here's, I have this colostomy because of surgery, or because of cancer, excuse me. And I feel like, you know, my memory's not what it once was because of, I've done like, you know, 15 months of, of uh, chemotherapy over all of it compiled, you know, and all the anesthesia that I've had from surgery, yeah. like, you know, I woke up from the anesthesia and it felt like a month before I felt back to normal. Was I back to normal or was that just funny how I felt? I re this is like the new baseline, you know, and like so many things and you're going to have the double mastectomy and you're going to have implants and like, and then they're going to be like, um, you know, there's a whole process with that of getting used to, it's just, it's like getting handed like an additional full-time job that you really uh, didn't ask Does for. the podcast ever trigger you? Like when, like when people ask you about your journey? Yes. Yeah, I have discovered, say, language for experiences that I didn't have language for. I was in the middle of a podcast with someone. I don't remember which one it was. And I'd heard people say, yeah, such and such happened to me. It was traumatic. I didn't want to be in my body. And I didn't know what that meant, but I believed them. And then I was in the middle of a conversation with someone and it suddenly struck me. Oh my gosh. When I had the colostomy, I was so disgusted by it. I did not want to be in my body and I'd never had, I just had, it was a feeling. I didn't have the words. And when I realized I'm in the middle of this conversation, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what it was. I didn't want to be in my body. It, my body was gross to me. I wanted to be somewhere else. Like I got checked out yeah. mentally. It was so disturbing to me. I don't recognize myself. Like, I don't, I don't recognize my face. So like, I don't care that my hair is gone, but your hair makes your face. Like I was saying before, I haven't put anything on social media, like only on my close friends group on Instagram. I also kind of felt like I was jinxing it, right? Like if I talk about it, it's only going to get worse and they're gonna, it's going to be another stage and blah, blah, blah. But I feel like a lot of young people who have cancer kind of look the same because you're like, you're cranked up on steroids and then you're gaining weight and it makes your face round and you don't have any hair. And like a lot of people are wearing like the hospital wigs and you're wearing clothes that are comfortable because you're just so uncomfortable and your body hurts and like the new Lesta pain. And it's just, it's a lot of stuff. And it's just like, it, it's just a lot of stuff. And so I went through, this was probably like two weeks ago, or maybe it was like a month ago, because, you know, you're after your fourth cycle, you know, you've got six, you don't want anything to like postpone it or add another one. It's, I mean, even though my symptoms are like, you know, very mild, 
I, I, I don't want to do, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to, I want to move forward. I want to mm-hmm. go ahead and get my surgery. I want to go ahead and just be finished with radiation. And when I say like, I didn't recognize myself one day, I have port scars, right? Like they freaking put a port in my chest. Like it's sticking out of my neck. Like the menopause shot, like gives you acne. I've never had skin problems before. I had an ingrown hair on my head, on my scalp. Like it's just these little things. Mm. And then they keep, you know, going up and up and up. And then when you finally lose your hair, you're like, okay, I am a cancer patient. And I was like, what hat doesn't make me make other people feel uncomfortable? Like at the end of the day, I don't know why my number one thing is just like making sure people aren't uncomfortable around me when if you love me enough to help me take care of myself, then it's not going to make you uncomfortable. Like, I feel like getting cancer is like having a baby and whoever was going to be there to wipe shit is still going to be there to wipe shit. And whoever wasn't about you having a baby in the first place, like, ugh, I don't even like babies, like, aren't going to come around. And I, I've lost friends. I've lost friends. And it has only been since September. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm done. I mean, if you can't help someone with a life and death situation, you're not a best friend. You know, you're pointing to something really powerful. You know, it's like uh, caring for other people when you're the one who's been diagnosed. People don't know how to communicate. They don't know what to say. They're, you know, and we find ourselves supporting them. Lots of survivors. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, if you're, I, so that's the one thing I told people. I thought about it. I internalized it. And I said, you can be scared because this shit is scary. You are not allowed to be more afraid than me. Because it's happening to me. And I don't know. I have all of the unknown. So you can be scared. You can be sad. You can be empathetic. You can be sympathetic. And I'm very appreciative that you're here. But like there were a couple of my friends who like kind of disappeared for like two weeks. I literally asked my husband if he was going to leave me. Like like our third wedding Uh anniversary was Uh last week. How fair is that? You, our first wedding, our wedding was perfect. First wedding anniversary, I'm pregnant. Second one, we have a one-year-old. The third one, you have a wife with breast cancer. And thank God he's not having to like wipe my ass. It's our third wedding anniversary. We're supposed to be getting ready to have a baby. You know, we're, we're, I I should be choosing Instagram filters for God's sake. Right, there's a lot of that inside of a diagnosis where we're like, I'm supposed to be having X. It's like, I developed this mantra where I was like, okay, today I'm giving up the expectation that my life was supposed to be a certain way and I'm being with what's so. And I say that very freely now, but that sometimes included a lot of tears because I was like, I had it, life's supposed to be a certain way. And then I started realizing, oh, life is actually how it is. But it's, it is supposed to be this way. Like I had to let go of that. I'm not, you know, since we have those three babies in the freezer, it, they say, don't call it an insurance policy. So call it whatever you want, you know, so not everything's off the table. Mm, okay. I'm very, very grateful to live strong. 
they helped yeah. us out with that. Anybody who's diagnosed, like reach out to Lift, oh, yeah? they will help you. Yeah, they cover all the drugs. Wow. And they like have a set predetermined amount with the with certain fertility clinics. Oh, that's beautiful. So like it took uh, like six thousand dollars off the price. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I want to tell you something. My friend who called me and said, Bert, you get to say how your treatment goes. She was the one who got diagnosed before me. And we were in a coaching program together. And when I stopped seeing her, or a leadership program, when she got diagnosed and I stopped seeing her, she called me like a few months later. She goes, Bert, where have you been? She goes, I, I got cancer and I haven't heard from you. And I started crying. I said, Mary, I freaked out. I thought you were going to die and I stopped calling you. And she's like, okay, well, I'm not going to die. I'm right here. I'm still alive. When are you come visit? And I started crying again. I'm like, how about Thursday? She goes, okay, good. I freaked out and I didn't know how to deal with it. I was like, I was so scared that my friend was going to die that I chose to like, I checked, I didn't choose anything. I checked out. Yeah. And she called me. It's like, it is like, and you know, I think for each, each person, it's like, for some of us, it's like, okay, I'm going to reach out to my friends. Other folks are like, you want to know what? I'm full. If yeah. people aren't going to be available for me, I can't reach out to them because I'm full. We have a baby. We're thinking about the next baby. We're trying to work at home. There's COVID. <laughs> I, you know, and you're already caring for the people who love you. You're already seeing a family member, a parent, a sibling who is like heartbroken about it. And you're letting them know. It's like, no, we got this. Yeah. I so appreciate your honesty and your generosity. This has been great. It's been cathartic. Like I feel, I feel good. I might call scheduling and see if they have a brain MRI for like Monday. (laughs) So first of all, I hope you will uh, let me know how your surgery goes. I mean, don't feel like you have to, you know, but I'm thinking about you. you Oh my God. We're best friends at this point. Okay, good. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. That's done. And will you tell everyone again where they can find your podcast and what it's called? Yes. So the podcast is on Instagram. It's at life with little ones dot podcast. And then my account is at type a guide to cancer because I'm super type a and I just went live with that like new account because I didn't want to put like cancer stuff on like my account. Mm-hmm. I already got like 150 followers in like a week. I don't even have 150 followers for life with little ones. <laughs> but yeah like it's already been a community and i helped i helped this one girl out with like hand and feet neuropathy like even though i don't have it like i got a lot of information from a lot of people like i just ask 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 like right now i'm gathering all the information for the double mastectomy what is going to make it easiest on me my family everything and I'm just super type A and I'm just, you know, I don't want to Google it. (laughs) So I'm, Mm -hmm. I am going to talk to survivors, but yeah, those are the two ways you can find me, uh, life of little ones dot podcast and, um, type a guide to cancer on Instagram. Lauren, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really great. I hope you have a good weekend. I hope you do too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Check out Lauren's podcast, Life with Little Ones. It's a place for parents to learn about other kinds of families, how to raise more inclusive children, and how we all cope with parenting in this pandemic in these times. It's for all kinds of families, same-sex, interracial, interfaith, conscious coupling, or intentionally single parents. You can find Lauren on Instagram at blended underscore kids with a Z and lifewithlittleones.podcast. 
please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.